1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, really happy to have you and really excited for our guest today. I think this is a fantastic topic. I really actually like the book title that accompanies today's episode. So let's get into it. We are interviewing Sunil Gupta. And Sunil has written a brand new book, comes out on February 23rd, and that book is called Backable the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. One of the things you're going to hear in this episode is why Sunil is so perfectly qualified to write on this topic. And I'm not talking about his formal qualifications, although those are impressive. Let's take a look. So Sunil teaches innovation at Harvard university. He was named the new face of innovation by the New York stock exchange His ideas have been backed by firms like Greylock and Google Ventures, and he served as an entrepreneur in residence inside Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. He has personally backed startups including Impossible Foods, Airbnb, 23andMe, Calm, and SpaceX. In 2019, Sunil established the Gross National Happiness Center of America in partnership with the Kingdom of Bhutan. Oh, and you might know his brother, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Pretty cool side note that I was unaware of until I really started doing research for the episode. In this episode, we'll hear about Sunil's background, his incredible family, who all seem to be brilliant. We could just have all the Guptas on the Smart People podcast. We're also going to talk about how to get people to buy into your ideas. How do you yourself buy into your own ideas? There are so many nuggets of wisdom in here. This is the reason we do this show. And I would love to hear what you think about it. We are at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this stuff, one thing you can do is support us on Patreon. And I just have to say thank you. Like, we've been getting more and more supporters. We're really building a community over there. So thank you to Rob H., Barbara P., Mary A., Andrea M., all of our new Patreon supporters. And all that have been supporting for a long time. We're getting to this critical mass where we can really start to do some cool things, have some great conversations. So head on over to patreon.com slash smart people podcast for as little as two bucks a month. You can support us and you can get great perks such as ad free episodes. You can ask our guests questions and soon many more things to come, but you got to get in now. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. All right, so happy to have you. Let's just turn it straight over to the conversation with Sunil, which was so incredible, as we talk about many things, including his new book, Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Enjoy. Sunil, welcome to Smart People Podcast. Chris, it's great to be here. Yeah, and look, I got to say, you definitely fit the mold here of Smart People Podcast, but I think your entire family does. And I have to admit, when <laughs> when I saw the pitch in your book, I didn't know anything about your background. And then I was reading about your mom. And obviously, then I was like, oh, my God, I know your brother. Um, so <laughs> for those listening, tell us a little bit about your background, your family. But then here's what I really want to know. What is the key to having what seems like everybody in your family be successful?
2: <laughs> you know, I wish I wish I knew, Chris. They, 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 don't, they don't necessarily. I don't, I don't think I'm trumpeted as as sort of that, but I, I will tell you about my mom, and I'll tell you about my brother. So, you know, my mom. My mom has a really remarkable story, and in a lot of ways, I think she is kind of the basis for this book, uh, "Backable." Um, and and the reason for that is because she grew up uh, as a refugee. Um, on the border of Pakistan and India. No running water, no electricity, but decided at a really early age that one day she was going to come to the United States, and she wanted to be an engineer with Ford Motor Company. Now, this was the 1950s, and so Ford was like the company at the time. And her parents get behind the get behind the dream, and she gets on a she finds a way to get on a boat. She gets to, gets to America. She ends up getting a scholarship to study at Oklahoma State University, of all places. Uh, the day after she graduates, she makes her way to Detroit, Michigan, where she applies for a job. But there was only one problem. This was the 1960s at this point. And while Ford Motor Company had thousands of engineers, not a single one of them was a woman. And so she finds a way into a meeting with a hiring manager. And then when he looks at her application, he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we, we actually don't have any female engineers working here. And so she's really deflated in this moment. And she gets up and picks up her crumpled resume and her purse, and she starts to walk out of the room. And then in the last sort of just almost this last ditch moment, she turns around, she looks at him, and she tells him her story. Of all the struggle that she had gone through, that her parents had gone through to get her to this place, to get her to this moment, to be in front of him. And then she says to him, like, look, if you don't have any female engineers, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. (laughs) And it's in that moment, sitting in this just plain looking conference room outside of Detroit, Michigan, that a middle manager from suburban Michigan decides to take a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world and she becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer.
1: It's amazing. And, you know, as, as you're telling me that story, I'm going as soon as, I mean, of course it's 2021 now, but as soon as they say, I'm sorry, we don't have any female engineers nowadays, I feel like, you know, my response is great. Then I can be that, you know, it, it, it just doesn't even resonate. Of course, completely different time. We have to appreciate Difference then?
2: Yeah, no, it's, exactly. And and I and I, I think about all the people. You know, when I write this book, I think about all the people who have the right substance, are there at the right moment, and then they get it. They get a response like that, um, and they don't say, "Hey, well, then, okay." Let me be that person. Mm. Instead, they sort of just walk out of the room, and 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 it just shows you how much just I think wasted opportunity there is out there for people who aren't willing to take a chance, but but might if you you take a moment to stand up and say, you know what, if you, if you don't, then then great, let's do something new together. I didn't even make that
1: tie between, and that's why you said a basis for your book, but the 1950s refugee Ford Motor Company, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world at that time to be able to really step outside of your comfort zone and say, then take a shot on me. It can't be overstated how that is what you're talking about when you're saying, how do we
2: get people to really buy into us and take a chance on us? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that that, that story really just kind of became almost like the, it became the, the, the story that my brother and I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And when Sanjay, when Sanjay was a practicing surgeon now in suburban Michigan, that's where we're living, very close to where my parents both worked. They both worked at Ford, and you know, my brother, my brother, very successful, had had done very well in school, and and uh, you know, was a was a was it was a great surgeon. Um, but I, I think that he he felt at this time that that he was starting to that he could you know, he wanted to do something else. He wanted to you know expand his horizons, and and he came up with the idea that maybe he could be on air, talking about. Some of the health stories that he was that he was seeing, and you know at that point in time he didn't have any on air experience he didn't have any journalism experience, but it was kind of impossible for us to look at my mom's story and say that that kind of stuff is going to hold us back right. and so you know it was my mom too who said to, to Sanjay, you know if if you don't have that stuff, find a way to 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 still to still get it done and and he does he finds he finds his way to you know, eventually, a meeting with with the folks at CNN, where he explains to them that you know he, the fact that he doesn't have any journalism experience, on-air experience, could actually be a plus. You know, because what he does have is he has the the stories, and I think the experience of of dealing with patients firsthand, and that's the level of empathy and and, and coverage that he wants to bring into the newsroom. Mm. And so CNN decides to take a chance on him, and that's how you know Doctor Sanjay Gupta of CNN gets his start.
1: It's so funny because when you think of Dr. Sanjay Gupta, I mean, you definitely, at least I don't think of struggling to get there. I mean, he's hes in literally everyone's home. I actually just told my wife, I said, hey, I'm interviewing somebody because it's snowing and the kids are here. I said, try and keep it quiet. I said, actually, Sanjay Gupta's brother, I, I didn't know that when I when I booked him. And she goes, oh my God, that's amazing. It's like household name you don't think of. <laughs> it, it was a struggle to get there as we all know, in truth, there is almost always a struggle behind any success.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, he is—he is, he is the quintessential sort of duck, where mm. you know he is graceful above the water, but he is working his ass off below the surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I, you know, and 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 that's and that's exactly what he is. Ten years older than me, so he's kind of a he's kind of a third parent. But you know, your 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 story is making me laugh because, you know. When, whenever I walk around with Sanjay, it, it's pretty typical for people to sort of come up and you know ask for a photo or you know you know want to have a conversation with him. They don't, usually don't know who I am, and and it's funny because in 2018, I was walking down the street. I still remember this, and you know I I, I was running for office at that time, and we put out our first set of commercials. So somebody comes up to me and says, "Hey, um, can I get a photo with you?" I'm not with Sanjay at this point. So this is the first time this has ever happened to me. Mm. And, uh, and so I'm like, yeah, absolutely. This kid, this kid's maybe 16 years old. And, uh, and so, you know, he, he pulls out his camera, we get, we're in selfie mode and he's got the camera in front of us. And in the last moment, right before he takes the photo, he yells to his friend. He's like, Hey Jim, get over here and get in this photo with Dr. Sanjay Gupta's brother.
1: <laughs> oh, that had to feel great. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> it, it's funny though. I, I don't want to really put words in your mouth, but w- let me just turn it into a question as I should, any journalist should. You ever feel like there's a shadow that you're under there or has it always just been, we've all worked for what we've got. I, I'm, I love my brother. I, I, I'm excited for any success he has.
2: You know, I, I guess I kind of wonder what things may be like it, had he and I been closer in age. Mm -hmm. a couple years apart, maybe, maybe I'd feel differently, but, you know, honestly, I mean, he, he he's 10, he's 10 years older than me. And my parents both worked really hard. It it was, it was Sanjay kind of, you know, doing a lot of the caretaking early on. And he just, I think it sets up this, this sort of almost, you know, even though he's not a father, it it feels like he's almost my permanent teacher. He was teaching me all these things when I was, was teaching me how to crawl, teaching me how to walk. Now you know I'm launching this book. I uh, he's the person who I'm calling you know every day, being like, "How do I do this? What do I what do I do? What's what does book launch look like? Or even the writing behind it." I was I was I was talking to him. So he, you know he's just kind of a it's almost like a permanent permanent teacher student relationship, and you know I, I I he's so he's so versatile about so many different things that like I can't imagine. A better teacher. I mean, it really, it really is a gift. As you were telling me a little bit about your story,
1: and and I want to talk about your background, and we'll get into a lot of things here. I know people are the reason people are tuning in to learn about you, your book. How do we get people to support us? But one thing that struck me, and this has been a theme that I've heard at least half dozen times over almost 400 podcasts, which is mm-hmm. the immigrant story. I'd love to hear your take on how. That immigrant background, your mother's story, how do you think that has impacted you your brother your family and has it been part of the reason why you all have been so successful and if so why
2: yeah um you know I think my mom's story is a little bit you know unique I think my dad my dad's is as well I mean I think it's the immigrant story I think is so shared but my mom's story you know I think is is you know, as a refugee, there was always sort of this sense of impermanence. And I think that even though, you know, my brother and I were both raised in a pretty safe, almost boring sort of suburb, you know, we still kind of had this, I think, mentality of like, it could all kind of go away. Um, And I think that that sort of kept us, I think, all on edge. And we were enjoying, I think, a good middle class lifestyle, but there was always sort of this sense of like, the hard work never stops. You can never take anything for granted, and I I, 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 my brother and I talk about that even even today. I think that you know, even with with as much as he's built for himself, I think that there's always sort of a sense of hey, let's not take anything for granted because we know how quickly it could go away. And I think that's part of our it's just part of our family story. I think it also kind of puts into perspective. I think when you when you think about um, you know risk. And, and you know, what what could actually, what could you actually lose uh, if things went wrong? I, I often think about that because, you know, I get a lot of, I guess I get a lot of credit in my career, but I don't think that I necessarily deserve for taking risk. You know, people are like, wow, that was very risky to start a company or it's very risky to go run for Congress. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is in that, you know, there are probably things I could do that would be that are available to me that that are less risky. So from that perspective, yeah, I'm choosing maybe a little bit of a riskier path. But on the other hand, if things go wrong, I'm not losing my ha- I'm not losing the roof over my head and I'm not losing sort of my ability to feed myself and the people that I love. That's not the risk that I'm taking. And and so if I if I compare sort of you know my story to my parents' story, um, it's very different because in their case you know, I mean, just rewind back to what we were talking about with my mom. Like what, what happened if that hiring manager said no? Like, we don't have a job for you. What did she do from there? I, I, just, I, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know if she lands on her feet. I don't know how that story really ends. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of risk there. So I guess you know, I do think that you have to take risks in life, I think, in order to reach your potential. And I think for us, you know, coming from the story that we came from, yeah, I think it just think it helps put it in perspective. I think it's I think it's kind of liberated us to take, I think, more shots on goal. Um it also, you know, I just I'll throw this in, you know, the spontaneity of everything is as well. I think just instead of having a well designed plan, just just realizing that things can happen spontaneously. Like I'll tell you, my mom, after she gets that job, she is a single woman living in Michigan. And she uh, and there, there are not many Indians, people of Indian descent living in her in her area. Mm-hmm. But she hears that in Ann Arbor, uh, there are people hanging out that that, you know, come from India. Uh, Ann Arbor was sort of like the international city of, of Michigan at that point. And so one day she decides to one day she decides to 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 grab a uh, you know, she she gets in her car and she she drives to Ann Arbor. But her car breaks down uh, right out on the outskirts. And so she she walks to a phone booth because they had phone booths back then and she looks up the most common Indian name that she can think of and the the name that she that she thinks of is is Gupta and and the guy who answers the phone is my father and that's how they met
1: wow i mean those stories what do you say serendipity what do you, what do you think that is
2: yeah serendipity just you know karma I don't know it's just all all this stuff sort of wrapped into one but it's kind of like you know one of the things I've been thinking about as of late and this is not in the book but just something that I've been thinking about after having conversations about the book is like the difference between being an being an architect and an archaeologist you know an architect is where you you want to design everything up front you you want to design your career you want to design your life and then after it's fully designed you want to start to you want to start to build and then there's the archaeologist who just kind of kind of just goes into the field, has sort of a general sense of you know where where she or he might start digging, might start looking. But but they're kind of in the field and they're looking for things and they see something interesting. And they say, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. Let's keep let's keep going. Or you know this isn't this isn't really leading to anything. So let's go over there now. And and I, I think that the the sort of um, I, I think that the 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 archaeologist. Uh, lifestyle has always been very intriguing to me. You know, this sort Uh, of liberation that you don't have to design it up front. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by
0: LinkedIn. 2021 is looking up. New beginnings means new opportunities to grow your business. If part of your strategy is adding new members to your team, LinkedIn Jobs finds the right person quickly. To make things even better, your first job post is free. There's no better way to find the right candidate for your team than utilizing LinkedIn. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. And getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Post a job with targeted screening questions and LinkedIn will quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar linkedin.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make the next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. And now you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com smart. Again, that's linkedin.com slash smart to post a job for free. That's right. You heard it. Post your first job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode.
1: Wow. Okay. So much to talk about here. Let me tell you one that I couldn't help, but just have these insane flashbacks. When you were talking about the risk profile and what you deem risky and all that, uh, you transported me back almost exactly 10 years ago. You know who you sounded just like, I mean, almost verbatim, I guess we had on Tony Shea. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow, Right. And let me tell you, his interview was one that set both me and, and John, the guy I do this with on, on our paths to some extent. One, we had him on incredibly early. He was just so gracious. We were nobody, you know, we didn't barely had a following at that time. And, and, uh, and so that felt great. And then two, we respected him and what he built and what he was about, and then he talked about that. What's the worst thing that happens to me? I mean, most people don't know this. Well, they might now, but he put so much into Zappos that he barely had anything for himself left. And he had made tens of millions. Yeah. And I remember asking him, like, you didn't just want to keep like 5 million on the side, <laughs> just, just in case it all right. came crumbling down. And he said, no, I would just you know, start another company. So anyways, that's what it reminded me of. And it's one of those things, it's a theme we hear. But it's not that easy. So let me, let me just take a, an example. I recently moved about a year ago. I have my, what I consider my dream house. I've, I've got two little kids, uh, my wife, life is good. Got a great job, et cetera. Now I aspire to be my own boss, to, to do some really creative things. Maybe it's with the podcast, but there's this fear of, well, you, you've got this life you want what are you willing to risk to, to kind of do more professionally that you want? Right. Mm. So I realized that I'm, I'm not going to go hungry because I even have a backstop of parents if I ever wanted them. Right. I mean, we all know the story of the golden handcuffs. Mm. So tell us, you know, cause you have this mindset that's just been ingrained in you probably since you were little, how do you deal with that? When you might have this comfortable life going on you want to take some risks but you know it could lead to some kind of loss how do you view that or how have you viewed that
2: yeah i mean you know one of the one of the mantras that i picked up while i was while i was writing this book i i wrote it down one day when i was when i was when i was interviewing people but i was kind of going through my own journey of of trying to pitch a company And, and, and just not having much success with it. I I was, I was getting rejected by every investor that I pitched. And I remember one day I just wrote this down and it, and it just stuck with me and it said, the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. Oh my God.
1: Well, that's a new quote for me. That's going on the bullism board.
2: (laughs) And, and it just became, it just became my mantra the whole, the whole time. Now, you know, it's, it's, I'll tell you. Every morning, my daughter and I play a game, and you know, hopefully, this will answer just a little bit of little bit of your question. Probably not not perfectly, but hopefully, a little bit. I she's 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 in second grade, and I I we do this little routine. I, I ask her what is the meaning of life, and she says to find your gift. And I say, what is the purpose of life? And she says to give it away. And it's all based on a quote that Picasso uh, had, you know, which is, which is that, that is, the, that is what the meaning and purpose of life is to find your gift and to give it away. And I, and I think that that's, that to me, I guess is, it is in, I guess always has been the, the, the reward. I, I do think that, look, you, you got, you got to figure out a way to, to take care of those you love, take care of yourself. Um, but I, but I, I do think that there's just, there's so much to, to be gained by, by, you know, I think doing things that don't bore you you know, do, doing things that, that do excite you. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about passion and, 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 you know, finding what it is that makes you tick. I think that um, I think that's all very important. I also think that that, like, if you find that thing that that ends up being sort of the reward in and of itself, mm-hmm. like the work is the work is the reward. Like I'm talking to you right now, um, probably a couple of days here before my book, uh, is, is going to launch like, mm-hmm. oh, right. And, and I have no idea how it's going to do. I just, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it's, it's a weird time to launch a book given everything that's happening in the world. Um, now my ego certainly wants the book to become like a bestseller, right? Sure. It, it wants that stamp on on the book, but I, I have to say, Chris, like if I really do take a step back, the reward is already there. Like yeah. I've, I've, I've got, I got to spend the past few years studying extraordinary people from Oscar winning producers to Michelin star chefs to iconic founders and studying the way they behave. And then I got to, then I got to write about it. I got to mm-hmm. put those thoughts down on paper and write about it. I mean, that's, that's the
1: reward. That's it. I have to tell you why that resonates so much. And and this is not about me. I just know to relate to all those listening who have an idea, who want to create something for six, seven years, I've, I've just really wanted, and I say wanted with a kind of quotes around it to write a book, but I didn't. And the reason is I I didn't quite know why I wanted to write it. Right. So it was like, I think I want to help people, but I also think it'll maybe help me in my career, but I did it. And only recently, literally within the past six months, have I actually started to write. And it was one shift in my thinking. It was just what you said. It said, I'm only going to start this when I'm simply writing it because I think I'll find joy in it. And that finally happened because the book is about many things, but 10 years of this podcast and what we learned from people like you. And it got to the point where I was like, I genuinely don't care if people read it. Now, I want them to because I want them to get value. but. I'm almost writing it because I want to pull these lessons out and, and go through this process. And that's why I vibe with what you're saying so much. It's like, you got to this point where you were like, look, this is a joy to do. Of course, whatever comes, it'll be great. And I'll put my effort into making sure it sells and people find it. But the part of writing it is the, the journey that I want to experience. And I think that just for anybody who wants to build something, it's like realizing that you'll do it when you you
2: feel that the reasoning behind it is yours. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up, man. I, and I'm 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 so glad you're sharing that. Because I don't think enough great leaders like like you, people who've done things and created things, share that enough. But I have this sort of hypothesis that people that there are a lot of people out there who are very successful that have this attitude. But the 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 reason they don't share it, the reason they don't talk about um, you know, process instead of outcome is because it can, it can come off sometimes as being indifferent about the result, oh. right? Like, so I'm reading A Promised Land right now, I'm reading Promised Land by, by, by President Obama. And, you know, one of the things that one of the things he talks about in the book is that, you know, a lot of his staff sort of thought he came across as ambivalent during the presidential campaign, during the first campaign. And in fact, there's this moment, and I, I might be butchering this a little bit, but where Dav- David Axelrod comes up to him and he says, you know, one of the issues is that you would be happy whether or not you win this election. You'd be happy whether or not you're president. And Obama looks at him and he's like, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I I would be. And, and I think that... I think especially in sort of an, in an aggressive, I think American kind of culture, business culture sometimes, it's so goal oriented where it's like, no, it's like mm-hmm. all or nothing. Like we gotta win. We gotta win. Okay. But and so I think for that reason, I think great leaders sometimes are a little bit careful about talking about this mentality of I'm in it for I'm in it for the joy of the work. Right, mm-hmm. and I'm actually I've actually in some ways detached myself from the outcome because mm-hmm. I'm so into the process. But I but I think it actually I think ironically leads to higher performance. Mm-hmm. Like LeBron James was giving an interview the other day, and they were, somebody was like, "What you know? Can you tell us a little bit about the LeBron mindset?" And he's like, "Look, it's pretty simple. You know, when I'm when I'm on the court, I'm never never thinking about the trophy, never." Mm. I'm just thinking about what's happening in that moment, and it leads him to become a higher performer. And I think we, I think we should talk about that more, right? Especially in a goal-oriented kind of, you know, especially you know Silicon Valley sort of OKR-focused culture. I think you know we, we should, we should be talking a little more about the process, about the work. I want you to
1: to tell our listeners about your background, kind of getting up to this book because it's it's varied and it's really interesting. I think. It plays well into what we're going to talk about, but also there is failure there. I mean, there is, it's hard to, to pitch and continually get rejected, right? Or it's hard to have some of what I believe from externally is the confidence that you have to be able to go in and tell these businesses, you'll be able to help them or bring them ideas. Tell us a little bit about your background and then loop it back to that process of being willing to go through failure with an understanding if you do it right, you'll get to where you want to go, regardless.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, for 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 me, I mean, I think you can you can write a book from one of two perspectives. You can write it as an expert, or you can write it as a student. I wrote this book as you know from the perspective of being a student, like spending years studying people who I thought had this sort of mysterious it quality, where they could walk into a room, whether that be a meeting or whether it be an audition or a pitch. And they could really just mesmerize us. They, they just really tend to shine. And what's really interesting about these moments, these backable moments, is oftentimes we want to take a chance on these, on these people, even, even sometimes before they're actually the obvious choice. You know, like a producer took a, a bet on Lady Gaga after she was dumped by Jeff Jam Records. A, an investor took a took a chance on on Jeff Bezos early early on before he had really any entrepreneurial track record before he had any experience with books. And so I, I was really trying to figure out could this it quality be learned? And the reason I needed to learn it is because you know I, I was I was out there pitching my company and I was getting rejected by investors. but beyond that too i I'd, I'd applied for jobs that I thought I was qualified for and got rejected. Uh, I run for Congress and I had lost. There is certainly much more failure on my resume than there is success. But you know, I think Bill Gates was the person who said this: "Success is a lousy teacher," and that is true. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I certainly learned a lot from those moments. But most importantly, I think it it kind of gave me this burning desire to write this book to say, "All right, well, if I'm getting rejected in all these situations, who who seems to be doing it right?" Because I, I had this sort of feeling that if we rewind the clock on their stories, we're going to find that they weren't always good at this, and that is true. I think most backable people aren't born that way; they actually make themselves that way and and that's really what this this book is about
1: let's say for the average person listening and we've got i mean we've got people who are running companies all the way from really really young adults who are just trying to find their way and what they want to do. Why do we need to be backable. What areas of our life might we even need to think about how backable are we?
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny because the word backable, I think you immediately sort of I, I immediately think of, of of two things. I think of I think of sort of celebrity and CEO, you know, walking into an audition and like someone getting the, the sort of role for a film or or a founder of a company getting getting funded. Um, exactly, and 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 that's kind of that's kind of how I I used to think about it. But, but I mean, look, even if you're not a celebrity or a CEO, how do you convince a hiring manager? How do you convince a team? How do you convince an admissions committee uh, to take a chance on you? I mean, even even friends and family, we're we're always we're always trying to rally people around our ideas. That we're, no matter what. I mean, it could be in our living room, it could be in a conference room, it could be over over Zoom. The way that you and I are communicating right now, you know, we're 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 constantly trying to rally people around our ideas. And I think, look, I mean, I I began writing this book over four years ago, but I think it's pretty timely uh, the way it all worked out because I think we can all use a little bit of that it quality right now. Mm. I mean, over twenty million people, over twenty million people lost their jobs just in last year alone. And there's, there's a mountain of evidence showing us that the vast majority of, of us are disengaged with what we do on a day-to-day basis. And I think if the pandemic has done anything, it's kind of given us, given, I think, a lot of us sort of that even brief pause to just, I think, remind us that, that life is brief and, and that waiting for change is no longer really an option.
0: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Neuro. Neuro makes functional gum and mints that help you to better your mind and do more. Imagine your health supplements in your pocket for whenever you go that you can take throughout the day instead of taking an entire daily dose in the morning. Loved by Olympians, engineers, academics, fitness enthusiasts, and people who are stuck working from home right now alike. The company was started by athletes who have backgrounds in neuroscience and chemistry. These patented cold-compressed gum and mints are gluten-free Sugar free, vegan, and work much faster than drinks or supplements. The energy and focus products have been shown to improve brain performance in a pilot study done with BrainCo out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. The new Calm and Clarity use ingredients scientifically shown to reduce stress and stabilize mood. Because these are gum and mints, they are also easy to carry around, they taste good, and they give you fresh breath. Go to getneuro.com to order and better your state of mind now. That's G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O.com and use code SMARTPEOPLE for 15% off your first order. Again, head over to getneuro.com and use code SMARTPEOPLE for 15% off your first order. And now back to the episode. So to go out
1: and, and make that change happen to some extent. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Whether that with, that's with your career, or whether that's a project that you want to lead inside the company, that you know, this is this is the chance, I think an opportunity to kind of to do that thing that you've kind of been tucking away. I mean, you know, it's funny, you know, one of the things that we that I found in this book, and this is one of the one of the sort of ideas that that I present, is that conviction is is really what makes people backable. It's not, it's not really ca- charisma. So, you know, I, I assumed when I was writing this book that I was going to find a certain style to backable people. They were going to use certain hand gestures and eye contact and pacing, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. As it turns out, it's, it's not charisma that convinces people, it's, it's conviction. And, and if you want, if you want a, a, um, an example of that, just go look up the number one most popular TED talk right now. And what you'll find is a guy named Sir Ken Robinson who gives this amazing talk on education. But what is surprising is that it doesn't come across as very Ted-like. He's got a hand in his pocket and he's got a slouch. And, and it just it, it's not the poster child for charisma, but you believe every word that he says. And it, it all kind of comes back to a punchline, which is that backable people take the time to convince themselves first and then they let that conviction shine through with whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. Some are shy and introverted. Some are gregarious and, and, and you know charismatic, but it, you can really have whatever style it is just as long as you have conviction for your ideas. Whew. Okay.
1: You're going to learn a phrase uh, that you probably haven't heard a lot if you haven't listened to this show a lot, but this was a goosebump moment for me. I feel like I haven't had one in a while, but man, you hit such a nail on the head. I felt it vibrate through my body genuinely. You said people who are backable take the time to convince themselves first. What has been going through my mind for the past seven, 10 minutes? And I'm like, man, maybe this is just a you thing, Chris. Like, I don't know. Is I feel like one of the hardest parts of all of this, everything we've talked about, careers, passions, life, et cetera, is doubt. And and that racks me. And I know it's such a part of everyone. It's like, okay, Sunil, I want to learn how to be backable, but I don't even know what I want others to back. Mm. And (laughs) if conviction is the key, there's very few things in my life that, and I'm almost 40, that I've gotten to where I'm like, I could walk into any room and feel extremely confident in this conviction because I'm aware of how much I don't know. Yeah. So Talk to me about doubt. Did it ever come up in your book? Is this something you've considered? Or are we starting with? Let's start with what you know and and want to be
2: backable on. I think it's such a good point to to be self aware of what it is that you don't know, you know. And I, I think that um, I, I think that we need more people who I think are sort of I think bringing both what they know and what they don't know into the room. You know, one of the people that I spent a lot of time with for this book was Reed Hoffman, and he's the founder of co-founder of LinkedIn. But he, but what the story that he shared with me was was from early on in his career when he was working at Apple, and he was a he, he was a junior level uh, researcher, user experience researcher, and he really wanted to work in product management. But the problem was that it was Apple it was a product company. A lot of people wanted to work in product management. And so he saw a lot of people approaching the head of the product group, asking him for a job. And of course, he was like, well, look, I mean, you don't, you don't have the right experience. So Reed decided to take a different approach. He went to the head of product management. And he said, look, I know I don't have the right experience. I know that. But what I would, I would love to ask you for is an opportunity to pull some of my ideas and the descriptions into a detailed document. And if I did that, would you be willing to read it? That's all I want. And the guy said, yeah, sure, I will. And it was that, that that really sort of paved the way to a product career for Reed. That document he said was not great, but it, but it showed a lot of initiative, and it showed some potential. But note, he wasn't really asking this person for a job, and he was also steering what he calls steering directly into the objections. So instead of avoiding those objections, steering directly into them. And I think a big part of that is, like you say, knowing knowing what you don't know, and and it's oftentimes that we we want to avoid sort of our weaknesses. But I, what I have found is that backable people it will will almost steer directly into them because they know that if you kind of avoid if you avoid the weaknesses of your potential idea or maybe if you don't have the exact right experience. That stuff is going to nag at the person who's sitting on the other side of the table anyway. It's going to nag at them, and they may even be tuning out the stronger parts of your pitch. But if you can find a way to steer directly into those objections, it doesn't need to be a perfect answer. What ends up happening is you win over so much credibility that you actually gain their attention for the stronger parts of your pitch. And is that
1: a big part of the convince yourself first? Is it to, to say, I do, you know, yeah. take a step back? look at this from from all angles. Is that one of the things you learned from that piece?
2: Definitely, definitely. I mean, what do you do when, when you're convincing yourself first, what, what I call in the book incubation time. So instead of rushing out to share your idea, the way that I think we can be tempted to do, you take the time to incubate it yourself. And that could be as simple as as you know taking, taking the time to talk about or taking the time to write out what are the things that you love about the idea, but also like what are the things that you think might be the objections to the idea? You know, if you were if you were in the shoes of someone that you think eventually you're gonna be sharing the idea with, what are the top three things that you think that they would say? Even if you don't necessarily agree with those objections, what do you think those top three things are? And then writing out answers to those. It's it's such a it's such a I, I think you know trivial sort of thing to do. Sometimes it, it sounds very basic, but it's amazing. I, I never did that. And, and mm-hmm. it, you know, it's amazing how many people don't do it. You know, one of the things that uh, we found is that, I mean, the science has, has really shown this over and over again, that as human beings, the, the, the fear of making a bad decision is twice as powerful, twice as powerful for us than the pleasure we get from making the right decision. And if you, if you think about that, then what that means is when you're trying to convince someone to do something new, whether it's to take a chance on you as a candidate, even though you don't have the exact right prerequisites, or to convince your team to go in a different direction, you know, you can't just excite them with the possibilities. You also need to neutralize the negatives, and that means bringing it up proactively yourself and, and talking about, you know, what are some what are some options so that they can pay attention to what's exciting.
1: I love that. And it's a great way to, like you said, just step back and think about it first. I know when I get a, a really exciting idea, I'm very extroverted. I actually have to think out loud. It's one of the right. reasons this podcast exists. So I'm like, let's just tell a bunch of people. But I read some research a while ago. And I can't remember the source, so don't quote me on this, but it was something along the lines of when you do that, when you take an idea and just run out and tell people, you actually lower the chances of doing it. And the, one of the primary reasons is if it's a good idea, you will get a lot of that that hit, that that benefit hit, because yeah. people will say, wow, that's a great idea. And that's part of the win. So then you might say, it is great. I knew it was, but it's a lot of work, and let's just not do it, anyways. So, <laughs> it, it actually decreases the chances of you doing it. And then, if it's a bad idea, that will also decrease the chances of you doing it. So, maybe we should just—that's why I liked what you said. Convince yourself first. Maybe you really should just slow things down. Did yeah. you hear this a lot from
2: successful people? I did. I did, and and, and uh, almost almost every you know extraordinary person that we that we spoke to for this book has that story of 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 you know coming up with something, rushing out there, sharing it with someone. And I think for the most part, getting that kind of, huh, reaction, or yeah, that could, huh, you know, it what it, it didn't match their, their level of excitement. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when, when, when we get excited about something, but the person that we share it with isn't as excited, it, it can be deflating. And the thing about it is that that doesn't necessarily have to do with the quality of your idea, in 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 a lot of cases, it simply has to do with the quality of the explanation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You haven't taken the time to kind of figure out how to explain this in a way that that is compelling. I mean, just take 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 the take the example of penicillin, for example. I know kind of random example, but I think relevant to what's happening in the world right now. Yeah. You know, this this is the nineteen this is like nineteen eighteen. A physician named Doctor Alexander Fleming comes up with penicillin. At this point in time, hundreds of thousands of people are dying from infection, and he's got the answer. And he walks into a room with investors and scientists to basically show them his, show them his answer. But the problem was that Fleming, while he was a brilliant scientist, was, was actually a very poor communicator, like notoriously poor at communication. And they didn't bite. They were like, huh, we, we, don't, you know, we, don't, we don't quite get it. And as a result of that, he walks out of that room. It was, in, it was in London. He puts penicillin on a shelf, and he doesn't pick it up again until 10 years later when a guy named Dr. Flory comes around and is like, look, we've got to find an answer to this. We're like, you know, we're, we're people, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. We need to find something. And I think that this guy, I've heard this guy might have an answer. And so he goes, he figures out what this is, and he's like, oh my God, you, you have it. And so they take it out to market together. And they convince investors. They convince pharmaceutical companies, and and it becomes a thing you can find at the local at the local, pharma- the local pharmacy. But mm. the point is that like it wasn't any different, right? Over those ten years when we didn't have the answer, where people died unnecessarily, we actually had an answer all along, but it just wasn't communicated in the right way or in a way that people sort of looked at. And, and it's a shame that sometimes it has to be that persuasion and persuasion and innovation are two different skill sets. It would be, I think, great if there were one where everything that was innovative was also persuasive, but that's, that's not always the case. I actually think that's
1: a really important message. It's something I naively subscribed to for a while, which was people would say, you, no, you need to learn how to, whatever it is, pitch or write that email or talk to people or present. And I remember thinking, no, like, I don't want to spend time on that. If it's yeah. good enough, it should do it on its own. And it took me a while to realize, you know, and I felt the same way about marketing, right? Yeah. Why would I have to market? Why Why can't I just do good work? I mean, heck, we think about that with the podcast sometimes, but it is naive. The best stuff in the world still has to be brought to market the right way or explained the right way or sent to people the right way. I think it's just such a critical component. Yeah. Let's say we've taken some time to... To bake the idea on our own. We've convinced ourselves. At that point, do you find that most people who move forward, move forward still with some level of fear? Or are the people who made it just so, they have so much conviction that it's almost as if there's no way they're going to miss?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that most backable people that I spoke to, I think we're, were were not ready to do what they actually did um, and it's 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 an it's an interesting question about doubt because I think that for the most part we assume that folks who are backable who go build things that are that are that are extraordinary or bring things to the world that are really special don't have that doubt but but I, I actually do think that they they did um, and but I think that the, the, the thing that makes it different is that the three words that we tend to sort of use to hold us back sometimes are, I'm not ready. And I think that backable people just kind of felt like, I'm, I don't feel like I'm ready, but I'm going to kind of just do it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, like three, three friends from design school were not ready to create Airbnb. You know, a 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden was not ready to create an environmental movement. But Greta Thunberg is, you know, Time Magazine's youngest person of the year.
1: Yeah,
2: you know, we, 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 we sort of just kind of, and I, I think kind of reminding ourselves of those stories, I think, can be very, very helpful, because I, I think it, the, the more that I peel back the layers on these, on these incredible businesses and organizations and movements, the more I kind of landed on a story where I was like, gosh, that person didn't, didn't seem ready. That I mean, they seemed very, very, very young, or you know. Less experienced than 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 the obvious choice. I mean, I mean, look at Martin Luther King, for example. And a lot of people, I I have to constantly remind myself of how young he was to do something as impactful as he did. I mm-hmm. mean, when he gave his "I Have a Dream" speech, he was only thirty four years old, and it's just it's unbelievable. And and I, I can only imagine that as as everything was happening, there there were probably people with more experience that that you know may have also been candidates to to lead this movement. But, but it was him. And, and I think that there is sort of a mentality of, look, I'm not ready, but, but, but neither are a lot of people who do amazing things. Then now a word from this week's sponsor.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by Honey. We all shop online. You do it. I do it. In fact, I probably bought five to six things in the last two days. It's kind of ridiculous. And we've all seen the promo code field taunt us at checkout. I scour the internet trying to find a code just so I can save a few bucks here or there. But now I've got some help. Thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online. They range from sites that have tech to gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. So here's how it works. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you're at checkout, the Honey button drops down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Within a few seconds, Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site, and when Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the price drop. Okay, so don't tell her, but just the other day, I was looking for an iPad accessory for my wife, and I found it, and with Honey, I saved 12 bucks on it. Pretty awesome. So why don't you join me and the over 17 million members that Honey has found over $2 billion in savings for. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and it installs in seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com smart. Again, that's joinhoney.com slash smart. And now back to the episode.
1: Yeah. And you kind of get ready as you go and people forget those early stumbles to some extent. I really think that's such such a good message. And we've only got a couple minutes left and I'm sure people are like, well, you're leaving me here. Like what's next? So (laughs) one is there's a whole book about it and we're going to end this on the book. But before we do, let's say we've baked it. Yeah, we've got a little doubt, but we're moving forward. Can you give us a few of the key components that we can all work on to become more backable?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I I I constantly think about as I'm coming up with new ideas now is is to is to share an earned secret. Share an earned secret with the person that I want to convince. And what I mean by an earned secret is is something that you found through firsthand experience. What what I realize is that great ideas tend to be based on you know an interesting insight, something that something that you were able to find. I'll tell you a story. I was I was um, interviewing Brian Grazer for this book, and Brian Grazer is this Hollywood producer, and so I'm waiting in his waiting room, and. There are all these people there, ready to pitch him, but they're ready to pitch him on all these different things, on, on getting a job, or pitching a film idea, television idea, uh, business. And I could just tell this, this waiting room was, was relatively, the anxiety was high. People were, people were nervous. And so I went back, when I went back to go see Brian, I, I asked him one question. I said, look, if I could go out there right now and give everybody one piece of advice on how to pitch you, what would that be? and he thinks about it for a moment and he says share with me something that i can't find on google share share with me something that is not googleable mm. and what i realized after talking to to more and more backers people who are sort of in charge of these decisions what i realized is that you know how you arrive on your idea can be as important and memorable as as the idea itself and oftentimes that that comes through just putting yourself into the field, getting beyond Google and talking to customers, test driving the product yourself, attending shareholder meetings, just doing something to grab a piece of insight that m- most people in your in your shoes wouldn't do. You know, I was, I was talking to someone the other day who was applying for a company at a, she was applying for a job at a social media company, but as it turns out, you know, she didn't use the product. It's a, it's a very much a Gen Z sort of platform but what she did is she 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 interviewed her daughter and all of her friends all of her daughter's friends, each one of them and asked them what their experience was like what what did they like about the product what they what they didn't like about the product and then she did something really clever she had them send her screenshots of their experience like these little moments that they they really loved or or, or, or wish were different. And then when she went into the interview, this was all over Zoom, she held up her phone and she started showing off some of this research that she had collected. And not only did she get the job, but the person on the, uh, you know, on the other side of the Zoom screen was so impressed that he brought in one of the researchers, one of the designers, into the meeting. He like dialed them in through Zoom right away and was like, you got to check this out. And all of a sudden, now she was, she was this person who went from not having used the product to like sharing these insights that they that they didn't quite have at the top of their mind. Mm. So just finding an earned secret by putting yourself out there and grabbing one thing, at least one thing, that couldn't be found through some some Google research, I think it'd be very powerful. You know, the scary part about that is there's Google knows pretty
1: much everything. <laughs> so I just heard a collective group of people go, What do I know that Google doesn't? But <laughs> What I learned as you talked is it's more about that ir- experiential experiential.
0: Yes, it
2: is exactly. It's about experiencing it yourself, and I and I think even just you know being able to say you know, I, I, you know well, obviously without being boastful, but 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 being able to show that you did this work, that that's half of the CERN secret. You know, you earned it. Yeah, you know, and that and that and that means a lot. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Jonathan Karp, who is, who is um, you know, a, a publisher, and he was telling me a story about how he was trying to get Howard Stern to write his latest book, this book called Howard Stern Comes Again. And he, he had literally been, he'd been trying for 10 years to try to get Howard Stern to write a book. And Howard Stern's like, look, I, I don't want to write a book. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've already written, you know, a few books and, and, and enough is enough. Like, I don't, I don't feel like doing that. It's a lot of work. And so one day Jonathan Carp is, is sitting in his office and, and it strikes him that a lot of the research, a lot of like the work is already out there right now. And a lot of what, he, what Howard Stern could potentially put in a book is already in interviews that he's done. So what he does is he goes through literally thousands of pages of transcripts and starts extracting the key moments of these interviews between Howard Stern and, and his, his most notable guests. And then he brings all that together into a book. He literally binds it with a a nice leather binding, and he shows up at Howard Stern's apartment to pitch him again. And and Howard Stern's like, no, no, not this again. I don't want to write a book. And he's like, well, I've already got it written. Here it is. And he hands him the book, hands him the actual book. And Howard Stern looks at this, and he's like, the way he describes that moment is that he was just so intoxicated with effort, so intoxicated with the effort that Jonathan Carpa put into this that he was like, I can't can't say no to this. (laughs) Right.
1: Wow. That's how it happens. I love that. Intoxicated with the effort. Are we willing to put in the effort? You know, that's a big part of it. And I think it brings us back to what you were talking about at the beginning, which is, you know, you will get there if the right idea and moment presents itself. Like you genuinely will. I think that's so, you know, and I'm not talking about this idea that Wait, sit there and wait for creativity to spark. I mean, if you did that, you'd never write this book, right? Sometimes we got to grind through things. But if you have ideas and you just haven't pulled the trigger yet, they probably weren't the best ideas for you. And I think oftentimes you just have to trust that. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And I and I think you know after taking that time to yourself and you and, and you've and you've you've done the work, you've incubated it, and then you put it out there. You know, and people if people say no. I think a couple things to keep in mind. One is that there there is always another room. You know, there's always another room. And people said no to literally some of the some of the most you know I think influential ideas of our time. Certain people certainly passed on Google as a company, passed on Instagram, passed on Facebook. That that, that has happened. And 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 I think the other thing to keep in mind is that there that long term success comes from short-term embarrassment hmm. you, you're gonna, putting putting a new anything into the world, trying to change anything, you're, you're probably going to be on the other side of people doubting you, poking holes in your ideas and that can that can feel bad, it can feel embarrassing. but again, I think long-term success over and over again has been proven out to come from short-term embarrassment. And are you willing to step back up and do it again? Yes. You know, look, uh,
1: Sunil, I know we got to let you go here in a second. I've got one last question for you actually comes from a listener. We, we have some of our listeners who support us, who, uh, will like to submit questions at times. And I think this one's fantastic because it's a little bit of a spin on what we're talking about. So the first is what do you do to build trust and what component is it? And, and maybe if you want to touch on that, the one I think that is really relevant here though, is. How do you determine who you actually want backing you in the first place?
2: It's such a good question. And, and, I, don't, and I don't think it's something that I think entrepreneurs necessarily think about sometimes because we're kind of like, you know, let's let's just let's go. Like let's we'll let's take go. anyone. <laughs> we'll take anyone. We need funding, right? right. That person, you know, you're entering into a, a very long term relationship. Um, and something that will, I think, influence the outcome of what you do. And, 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 and generally, I think it's just quality of life. I mean, I, I've had, I've had tough investors, I've had great investors, and I've sort of seen how that can, that can influence, you know, your, your work and, and, you know, how much you enjoy it. And so I think, I think spending some time, not only, uh, not only having them ask, ask you questions, but I think asking them questions as well you know, one, thing, one specific thing that comes to mind is that in the book we talk about the IKEA effect, the IKEA effect, which basically tells us it's some research that, that was done years ago, which shows us that we, we value something that we build mm. up to five times more than something that we simply buy. So there are a lot of people out there with poorly made furniture and that they're never going to get, le- they're never going to let go of because they built it themselves. <laughs> there's, 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 there's an emotional attachment to that. And the Ikea effect has been proven out over and over again. And the reason that it matters for, when we talk about something like trust and, and collaboration is because, you know, when we walk into a room with someone we're trying to convince, oftentimes the temptation is to just give them everything to, to, to almost give them some bulletproof pitch. But I, what I've learned is that it, it's better to actually leave some things out to kind of present the vision of what it could be, but not necessarily all the details of how it has to be, because you want to see what organically comes up in the room. The person on the other side of the table might end up having better ideas and, you know, or, or, or things that are really worth considering. And, you know, the, the thing that I like to keep in mind is to, to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. Because if you can keep it open and and fold in some of the ideas that are coming up in the room organically, then the person on the other side of the table can get invested in it and and I think that that's where trust gets built both ways. You get to see how they think, but they go they also get to they also get to be part of the creative process and you start to build build something together. I love it, I love it, and I have to say for those listening
1: that this is just a a tiny bit of what's in this book. I mean, and as of, as you said, as of the time we're talking, it's not out yet. Um, I've been lucky enough to see it, but, uh, it's just so, I think it's so pertinent. It's so timely. And the people listening to this show specifically want to know this because these are idea people. I mean, I think that's why when you take this idea of being a generalist, understanding So many different areas, creativity, I truly believe is when you take all these disparate ideas and are able to combine them to solve a new problem. And then the key is, as you're explaining, we got to go get other people to believe in it. It's not enough just to to do it ourselves. in this world. We have to have others on board. So Sunil, I just want to say first, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate, appreciate the time and the insight. The book is backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Uh, I want to leave with, you know, what first of all, do you have a website for it? But second of all, are you writing, tweeting, are you out there so we can learn more about this? Any places that we can go find more?
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. So go to you can go to backable.com. So b a c k a b l e.com. And that's got links to, to, to you know, all sorts of stuff. There you can, you can download a free excerpt from the book. Um, you know, I'm posting some videos, some new, new content there, and I'm just going to keep that updated. Because look, I mean, there's just so much. One of the cool things about writing a book is you write the book, and then you put it out there. And then when you put it out there, all these new stories come to the fold. And you're like, oh my gosh, that was great. I wish I could have had that in the book, but the book's already out there. So now I'll be, I'll be putting that stuff on the website. So you can go there and you can check out new content. You can sign up for my newsletter and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'd love to have you be part of the backable community. I appreciate
1: that. Well, again, Sunil, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much for being on the show. All right, Chris,
2: thanks so much for having me on. This was great. Absolutely.
0: That was Sunil Gupta. I really hope you enjoyed it. And as a reminder, Sunil's book, Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You, is available on February 23rd, wherever books are sold. All right, let's jump into the quick housekeeping items and get you on your way. If you'd ever like to reach out to Smart People Podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod if you're looking for an easy way to support the show, just send one of the episodes to a family member or a friend, have them listen to the show. We would truly appreciate it. And if you'd like to help us monetarily, you can always head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smart And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.